third and last uh, class on anger. This one is entitled Transforming Anger. <clears throat> so we've sort of uh, been putting together uh, the hows and whys of anger, where it comes from and uh, how it drives us, <clears throat> how it becomes, a, for many of us, a posture, a way of presenting ourselves to the world that feels very, or can feel very secure and very stabilizing because we have lived with it for such a long time that we really understand uh, its influence upon us and are so identified with the righteous view from which it comes that we develop a sort of cynicism or can develop a kind of cynicism uh, that we feel is very righteous and, and what the world deserves. And just to um, exemplify that point, I take you back to Christmas 1983. I was a monk at that point, just having left Thailand and had gone to India, in, to Bodh Gaya, <coughs> which is where the Buddha's enlightenment took place. And since it was Christmas time, I just recently entered the country, I thought I would offer the beggars who line the temple gates of the um, stupa there where the Buddha was enlightened, which commemorates where the Buddha was enlightened. And all along the, the fence there, there are oh, scores of beggars waiting for tourists to come by and give them a few paisa. And so I thought, well, what I would do is buy, I counted the beggars, 42, <laughs> or however many they were, and I bought an orange for each one. And I was going to go along and, because they're all lined up there, just squatting. So I had these oranges, bags of oranges, some of which I couldn't carry, so I had them set, set down and picked up the first bag went to the first beggar and started giving him one. He thanked me. Before I reached down to pick up the second orange to give the second orange to the beggar, all the beggars all along the line came racing at me and ripped the bags. I just stood there. They were ripping the bags, ripped about all the oranges that I had packaged nicely to pr for presentation, and the oranges started rolling all over the streets. Many of them gathered two, three, four oranges and ran off. And I remember seeing the beggars almost uh, animalistically just clawing at the bags. And I thought, my God, you know. I was very upset. I thought, this is not orderly. <laughs> and I wanted to give everyone one. And people were taking four and five. And some people, of course, weren't getting any. And I became very sort of irate at the whole thing, even though I could feel the desperate need in the, uh, in the poorest of the poor. I still felt like they should behave according to some kind of rules so that uh, we could feed them in a, in a righteous way. And of course, they didn't behave that way. But what I 
realize was how out of control I felt. You know, I had it all lined up. I had one orange per person all lined up, beautiful. Not only matched the fairness equation, but also the control. <laughs> and that all just came tumbling down in a, in, a, uh, in a moment. And I felt like I had no basis on what, on, on, on anything at that moment. I just felt completely um, lost and uh, unstable. And then uh, I just started noticing the general chaos, how I perceived India to be kind of chaotic in that sort of way anyway. For those of you who have gone and been there, you, um, it, there's a sort of, um, you, someone told me before I left that you'll either be hassled to death in India or you'll love it. And I was starting to be hassled to death because they, everyone recognizes you as a Westerner and, and they raise the prices three or four or five, ten times what they would charge another Easterner. And you just are always hassled there in terms of what you're charged. And, and I, it's just got a, a sort of a general annoyance as the days went on, as the weeks unfolded. And I just got, and I was snapping and irritable. I suddenly re realized I was just carrying this with me, this sort of out of controlness, this feeling of, uh, of not having any solid ground to rest on. Nothing was familiar. Nothing was agreeing with me. I had dysentery and other things as well. And it just, uh, it just how obvious it was to me in that moment uh, how I was dependent upon certain conditions for my pleasant state of mind. And how if you change or modify any of those conditions a little off so that I would be out of balance in one of the major factors, my stability, and then my moods would all change accordingly. <coughs> now, many of us have found that this culture is a kind of a hassle. It's unfair, and certainly if our current political situation is any indication, it's full of high-minded, moralistic presentations and unforgiveness and a kind of a, 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 a right and wrong, a black, black and white fla uh, flavor that um, ridicules or belittles the very human quality that most of us are trying to grasp in this Buddhist tradition. And we can develop a sort of a souring approach to life because it's not fitting in with our Buddhism. And it's not fitting in with what we conceive love to be. It's not fitting in with how we think the world should live in harmony and simplicity and all the other nice words that we hear in our metta phrases. And yet here it is. This is it. We can work politically or environmentally to try to change things, but this is it. And in no way does it deny effective action, but to lose our sanity within the way this culture is, is to add insanity to the pot that is already brewing with such. And Buddhism is supposed to move us towards some sense of peace of mind. 
So our anger is an indication of how we are not settled with things as they are. Very simply, very directly. And how we are at odds, how we are dependent upon the conditions for our sense of harmony. And yet, Buddhism talks about harmony from a different dimension. Not from the dimension of conditions. Not from a house that has been built upon certain foundation, fundamental principles of fairness, neatness, control, order, stability. And then we can have peace of mind. But rather, the art of Buddhism is really the art to find that peace of mind regardless of the conditions as they appear. That's a whole different, different way of being. So Buddhism moves us towards stillness, towards awakening from the conditions which we are dependent upon. That's what we awaken, that's what we understand. And if we, under, if we understand Buddhism in that way, then we can begin to see that anger is a call to pay attention, that somehow we are leaning too much upon a certain dependent arrangement of those conditions, a certain way that we want the blocks to be. And that inevitably, if we do that, those blocks will rearrange themselves in the course of time. So Buddhism has everything to do not so much with what our mind tells us that life should be because the mind is just laying out the conditions that it wants in order to be pleasure, to, to seek pleasure, to dwell in pleasure. But rather what the heart, the connectedness of the heart, the, connected, the interconnectedness of us all, if we move with that, then we can begin to see that evil if we call it such, is that which backs us away or separates us from one another. And good, if we call it that, is that which brings us closer together towards one another. Put any definition into that statement, those two statements, and you'll see that even your definition of good or bad, however that is defined usually meets those definitions of whether it pulls us and separates us further either from ourselves or from other people or unites us and connects us more intimately with one another. A statement from Thomas Merton No, excuse me, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart, his or her own heart? And we begin to see that this thing called anger is within us all. And again and again and again, I must say that it has a perfect right to be in there. And it is how we work with it, how we allow it, how we embrace it or hold it 
not whether it is present or not, that will decide whether we operate and are driven by it towards evil, as defined by the separation that anger, when identified, leads to, or whether it's benevolence, or how we hold that anger to actually become more intimate with it itself. So now we are talking about how to transform the anger. You see, it, it seems very simple sometimes because the meditation itself comes out of that intimacy, out of that embrace. When we sit quietly and we deal with our emotions, our feelings, our sensations, when we deal with the sounds and sights and smells that come in, when we deal with the memories and the patterns that arise within us, we can either identify with them and get pulled into the storyline and therefore reassert the view and presentation from which they come out of, which is wrong view in Buddhist terms, because it's, it's identifying with the very content itself, or we can embrace whatever it is that's arising and not be moved by it. Just allow it to spin its tape, to tell its story experientially, allowing it to be there without having to force an identifying package of me or mine into that patterned behavior. And so when we do, when we allow ourselves to be mindful of something rather than to be identified with it, we embrace whatever it is that's occurring with love. With love. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, said in the Dhammapada, which is a, often, I often quote this because I think it really sums up a lot of his teaching. You cannot meet anger with anger. Anger begets anger. Whatever we do out of anger, because of anger, continues to feed the circle of anger. Not only, and I think people take that externally. He's angry at me, and if I get angry at him, that just makes him more angry at me. It's like Saddam Hussein. We shoot arrows at him, and he hardens his resolve to get back at us, and on and on it goes. You'd think we'd learn, wouldn't you? But we don't seem to be able to because we're so self-righteous in our view. We're so right. And you hear the president up there telling why as we lob missiles into a helpless country where the children are the ones that are destroyed. Not him. He sits in some palace far above it all that this is somehow righteous behavior. This is it. This is the way we do it. This is as if the, the people on the street had anything at all to do with this whole thing. And most people think and understand that anger begets anger to be 
the retaliation syndrome. You hit me, I hit you back, an eye for an eye. Few of us actually see it as the internal response to the conditions inside ourselves. That to offer antagonism or reactivity to our internal states perpetuates those states in exactly the same way. So that if I'm angry, if I'm upset, and I think, God, I've lapsed back, I've fallen again, this is, I've come, how many times have I fallen into the same pattern? What's the matter with me? That expression or reactivity to whatever it is that manifested encourages and deepens that very thing to come out again in the future. Anger never ends through anger alone. It cannot do that. That is the eternal law. But that's also the summation of the teaching. Because instead of getting caught in the cyclical behavior of self-anger perpetuating the internalized motion of anger itself, we bring in awareness. We bring in the ability to watch it, to hold it, without reactivity. And therefore, we offer the anger that is internal love. And if you think of love as some sort of soupy, ill-defined, amorphous emotion, think again. When we pay attention to something, which is hopefully what we do in our meditation, when we pay attention and tune in and listen and actually hold something within our attention, we are offering that thing, whatever it may be, be it a person or an emotional state, love. Understanding is love. Attention, without judgment, without criticism, just to hold it. That's the teaching. And therefore, we neutralize its future impact upon us by just giving it the curing quality, that which cures it through understanding. Thomas Merton. The basic principle of nonviolence is respect for the personal conscience of the opponent. Nonviolent action is a way of insisting on one's just rights without violating the rights of anyone else. The basic principle of nonviolence is the respect for the personal conscience of the, the opponent. Holding the other person's perspective with nobility, with honor. I honor what you're thinking. It's not what I believe, but I honor what you're saying. To do that, we have to stay connected with the other person. We have to be engaged. We have to be engaged with ourselves. If we are not engaged with ourselves, then we're either identified with the anger and perpetuating it through our identification, 
or were aversive to the anger and perpetuating the anger with our own anger towards it. I don't like it. But to stay connected with it means that we continue to attune and listen, to hold it and to honor it, and allow it to inform us. And it's in a out of dignity, out of respect for whatever the internal process is. Are people following this? So an important component of transforming anger is remaining in connection with oneself and with the other, with the opponent, with the opposition. When we don't, we lose our place in time and space. We only lose touch with ourselves because we're reacting, which means that we are not engaged or connected with our internal response. We lose connection with the outer, with the opponent, through our reactivity, we don't even see them as anything. All we want to do is kill them or run over them or push them out of the way so that our view can be the only view. And we lose contact with the moment we are in because we are racing through this moment trying to perpetuate the view into the next, wiping away this moment. No contact whatsoever. No engagement whatsoever. We don't even see the individual. We only see our self-righteousness. So once the person is lost, the connection and the moment is lost together. And of course, perhaps most fundamentally, we are no longer acting out of love. So let us look very practically on ways to transform the anger. And I think an important understanding is the difference between changing the anger and transforming it. If we sit with our anger, waiting for it to transform itself into something else, we are biding our time, and we're really not engaged or connected with the inward process. We're just waiting for it to evolve into something else, and we're being very patient, or trying to be very patient, as we go through this emotion. But we're not really on top of it. We're not really intimate with it. We're tolerating it. And tolerance is not awareness. <coughs> tolerant mind is really an intolerant mind trying to be tolerant. And our religions, our religions, they tempt to offer to change you or try to force you to. You're not good enough. You're sinners. You need this or that. Usually instilling guilt and shame. All in the self-righteousness 
of the Christ figure. Who would like to have known him? I bet he was a very human being with a wide range of emotions. When he throws the money changers out of the temple, pushing over the carts, that's a human emotion. When he's on the cross railing at why have you done this to me, that's a human emotion. We should remember that we're honoring in Christmas all of those behaviors, the range of behaviors that was the Christ consciousness. Not some ideal, moralistic ideal that none of us will ever perfect. And changing involves that hostility again. I'm not good enough now. I have to change this. I have to evolve to something else. But in all of that changing, anger, which is what we're gathered here to discuss or to see, hasn't been understood one bit. And so what we have to begin to learn is that it's not the objects of the anger that we're trying to settle ourselves with, but rather to understand anger itself. So it's not whether I'm angry at my father or my mother or the neighbor next door for doing this or that or the dog that did this or my boss or anything. But to understand what anger is, how it comes up, the very fabric of anger. We get so lost in looking outside of anger to blame anger on someone. You did this to me and therefore we can feel stable in our self-righteousness once more. Because we're right, you have done this to me. That we miss the very medium of that exchange. <coughs> the very emotion that intercedes within that self-righteousness. We look beyond the emotion to verify the self-righteousness. <coughs> but we're throwing out all the reasons and dealing with the emotion itself and when we do that, then we just bring it in. We bring it into ourselves in an intimate way. As long as I'm not looking out for myself as a way to correct it, or as a way to disown it, or as a way to not take responsibility of it by blaming it on you, you make me angry. Therefore, my anger is because you have done this to me. But rather to own it. To see it for what it is. To look again. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed in your own life how suddenly you will find yourself acting from your parental scripts. And there may be some behavior that you saw in your parent that really caused a great deal of reactivity in you throughout your life. Suddenly you'll find yourself doing that very same thing if you have any awareness of yourself. 
and we've just ingested the world in. Except somehow ours is justified and our parents weren't. And it's because we've never really understood it. We never gave our parents the opportunity to be understood by us. We just rejected them and the behavior and we internalized the behavior because we learned the pattern. And because we've never brought that same understanding to the pattern within us, we find it manifesting just exactly in the same way as it was in our parents. So anger is not pleasant. It will never be pleasant. But the Dharma is not about dwelling in the pleasant. The Dharma is not about self-fulfillment, is it about truth fulfillment? It is about seeing what is true, not where I'm self-satisfied. And anger won't make you self-satisfied. It won't allow you just to rest with it and say, now I'm the perfect person. I just feel great. But it will bring you joy will bring all of us joy if we handle it in the right way. So we are transforming the dualism of self-centered, self-righteous thoughts into the non-dualism of direct experience and letting the thoughts abate and dealing with the emotion itself. Now, some meditations attempt to sort of shut off, shut things out, to keep things at bay. And you can do these samadhi meditations or absorption states which make you feel like you're in a cave where nothing can come in. But then as soon as you, as soon as that concentration dissipates a little bit, you'll find a lot coming in once more. So that, that type of meditation is limited in its usefulness in understanding things. But it does develop a certain sense of focus and one-pointedness which can be helpful in another way. So we have to understand what we're doing in meditation. And then there is metta meditation. And that is, uh, metta is a, you're taking a, a deliberate posture towards things of self-acceptance. That's especially helpful for people who have had and you and had a lot of antagonism in their life, finding a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-disapproval, in which there's a basic kind of psychic posture of either poor me, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy enough, or that the world is against me and coming at me in a way that is a hostile. And if we can just change that balance so that it's a little more equal by intoning the world with some feeling of connectedness and affection, then that really helps us stabilize our consciousness so that we can then go out, move out from that consciousness and see what is there and learn about it. But I think the important thing in meditation is to understand that what we are trying to do above all is to learn 
about ourselves, to learn about these states of mind, to experience them so fully that we know them experientially, the experiences of them through repetition of feeling them again and again. And in that way, we can begin to see that anger dissipates in terms of a substance. It is not a substantial. It is not some solid thing, but just an emotion that has enormous space within that emotion as well. And so we bring in the understanding of Buddhism of emptiness. And we feel our body tightening and we become that tightening. Become the tightening. We forget the thinking and the poor me. And then anger begins to transform itself because it becomes something else. And that allowance or acceptance of just having it be in our body without any sense of, of problem. It transforms itself into the very spirit and heart of what Buddhism is, which is the source of emptiness itself. And oh, after a thousand times of experiencing anger, we're different. We become a different person. Over time, it becomes okay. And as we become more and more intimate with it, we actually begin to feel the joy and the experience of anger itself. Just joy, right alongside the anger. So anger can transmute itself into wisdom if we don't move away from it. Anger evolves, involves the same willingness to speak unpleasant truths as wisdom. The same cutting through. And the energy of anger, when it is within the fabric of my attention, so that it's within, it's not out of control, it's not reactive anger, can be used, the energy can be used to be very assertive. You find yourself not having enough energy or not feeling powerful enough towards somebody and getting increasingly angry and resentful on how they seem to be uh, pushing you back and having you compromise. And suddenly you take that anger or that energy and you say, by God, that person's not going to do this anymore. But you contain it in a way that allows you to go up to that person and use the energy from it to be assertive, to say no. No, no more. No more. And you're completely in control of it. Completely contained within it. It's not driving you. It's not trying, we're not trying to get rid of it. But the energy is there, and the energy has an energy of confidence in it as well. An energy of mastery, of control. Not the victim. And you can make your point very clearly and very straightforwardly from that energy. It's highly focused and straightforward energy. The secret to do this is the willingness to feel it. We practice to put ourselves into pain and disappointment. 
the self, the ego, wants anything other than that. It wants out. But the practice begins to turn the ego back in on itself. It's interesting. And you begin to act and be in a way that is counter to the conditioned way we have become. So the self wants to get out of it, wants to act of it, wants to be self-righteous. But our desire for truth becomes so strong that we're willing to let go of the self-righteousness and be disappointed not to hold the power seat anymore. Not to substantiate the ego at the expense of learning about the anger. I'd rather learn about the anger than take the seat of power. We practice to put ourselves into pain and disappointment. Like being married. (laughs) We have all these expectations of what a relationship is and what we find is neediness, having our ideal of what the relationship's going to be. We're disappointed. Being a couple is not what I thought it was going to be. There we are, right in the neediness. That's the relationship. That's the nature of the contact. I don't lose contact. I don't lose the engagement with the couple, with my partner. You feel the neediness, the disappointment, And you don't let that take us out, take us away from that connectedness. That becomes the connectedness. We set it right here in the middle. Talk from it, talk about it. So that's my series of anger. I thank you very much for being with me these weeks. Maybe we can sit just a moment or two before there are questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.